0: Hello, how wonderful of you to join me again for Out to Lunch, the place where I chat to an utterly fascinating individual over some top-class food, and you get to listen in as if you were, I don't know, sitting at a table right next to us, pretending not to hang on our every word. Now often, when talking to my guests, they reveal things as if they were, well, undergoing some sort of therapy. Today, the tables have turned, rather, because my guest is a hugely successful psychotherapist. Known for her frankness, we get into all sorts of juicy subject matter over a video link and wonderful food from 45 German Street, the restaurant of London's Fortnum Mason. As well as her career in psychotherapy, she's a broadcaster and most recently author of the book you wish your parents had read. It's the wonderful Philippa Perry.
1: I always like a man in makeup. I do like that because they're, they're improved by it. I like the makeup, but I hate false boobs. Hate them.
0: Hello, Philippa Perry. Hello, Jay Rayner. It is lovely to see you, and I have to say, you are the first uh, interview I've had on this in for lunch format, who has clearly gone to some trouble with their place setting. You have a, a nice wine glass in front of you. I suddenly worry that we might not be sending you wine.
1: Don't worry, which... I've. Uh... Got a bucket ready just in case you I, didn't.
0: You have. You've got an ice bucket. What's uh, What's the bottle of wine that you've uh, got? There?
1: now, now things begin to deteriorate. It's I'm uh, sure not. What? It's It's one
0: I've got on the go at the moment. It's a screw top. All the best things are screwed, Philippa. We know this. There
1: we go. Uh, it's, it's It's a, a Chardonnay. Chardonnay.
0: That's fine.
1: It's vegan then, friendly.
0: Is it? Yes. Yeah. So am I. <laughs> uh, you, you've talked about your aunties being very significant in your cooking. Yeah. Um, and standing you on a stool and and teaching you how to cook.
1: We made everything by hand. There was no electric whisk or anything. And I made cakes and meringues and uh, learnt how to uh, soak a bone to get the stock out of it and just really good basics. But I think because of that, I really associate uh, cooking and eating with love. It's very difficult for me to separate them.
0: So when you cook now... And I imagine you cook a lot. Obviously, we're all in lockdown at this moment.
1: Sometimes I cook with love and sometimes I cook because I just need food. But I love it when I've got the time and the space and uh, the energy to cook with love. And most nights I cook with love. I hope my lunch today has been cooked with love.
0: I'm hoping your lunch today has been cooked with skill and technique.
1: Well, Um, I think... (laughs) that is the same thing because you take a pride don't you with your yeah with your skills and your techniques and
0: I've actually always thought of cooking as a form of a brilliant form of control in a complicated world if I feel the world is uncontrolled around me and as um I don't talk about them much but as the, the father of you know two lads and a family life and all of that the one thing I can do is take control in the kitchen is that odd behavior of mine to associate it with control
1: Uh, I don't think that's odd behaviour. Quite a lot of our lives is about kidding ourselves. We're in control. I think this is why we like ritual, because the same thing happens at the same time, over and over again, as though we've got some sort of steady, secure structure in which to live. But in fact, we don't know whether we're going to have an earthquake in the next minute or not. We have no control over that.
0: No we don't indeed and I think you're absolutely right. I mean I'm I'm very happy to be deluded a lot of the time right when I say I feel in control well it's a delusion obviously it's my own decision that I think I But it's in control. so
1: comforting isn't it to, oh, to yeah. think that we are in control you know and yet we're mortal
0: We are mortal. Uh there's too too solid flesh are you sure <gasps> I can you? hear them.
1: Brilliant. They're there.
0: Marvellous! Right, now, wait till you get your, your headphones on and explain what you've got exactly.
1: I am absolutely thrilled because it says on the carrier bag, 45 St German Street. Oh. Indeed,
0: so um, German st- 45 German Street is the restaurant of Fortnum & Mason in German Street in Piccadilly. Have you been? I love it, I go quite often. Excellent. Well, w- uh, the thing is, you, you made. I, I asked you for your dietaries, and your dietaries weren't particularly. I, I don't eat, you know. No, I eat everything w- w- except for oysters. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned a couple of things one was pates, <gasps> a- and one was pies. <gasps> so you have got a chicken liver parfait with um, a, a caramelized onion brioche. That's oh. your starter. And Let's I have got. The raw mackerel and caviar tacos, my life. I know, I know, I know. And then your main course when you get to it is... is,
1: (laughs) This is fillet of beef wellington for two.
0: Yeah, I know, they didn't do it for one, so you had to have it for two. Uh, You've got dauphinoise there. I'm sure it will will benefit from just standing a little bit. Um, There's uh,
1: green beans there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Oh, hello.
0: <laughs> that, that looks is that? like a
1: lemon tart.
0: It does, doesn't it? Wow. Then
1: what's and... this? This looks like a, a bit of chicken parfait with a spiral brioche.
0: It does, doesn't it? With some
1: jam. Shall I start
0: with that? You do. And also, I notice, I suspect they're in your bag too. Are there, are there a couple of bottles in corrugated yes! cardboard? Yeah.
1: This is so kind of you. I'm very excited. Oh, <gasps> Martini!
0: <laughs> it's a Heppel Gin uh, martini. What? And um, I could sound very, you know, <gasps> sort of smug about that, except I didn't actually Negrimli? order them for you. I know. And we have rather classy food. And I have to thank 45 German Street for sorting this because they properly sorted it. Um, um, I and the don't delivery think... This feels supper.
1: so hot, this fillet, so I don't think I'll put it in the oven. I think I'll just rest it there. delicious. Del- and um, I think I'll start with a little plate. Put that over there. Yeah, why not? Put this there, put that there. Mmm! Oh! Mmm!
0: <laughs> Is that a good chicken parfait?
1: Yeah, it's really good. Absolutely Um, delicious. And now that I've had a mouthful of it, I think I might just have some organic Chardonnay. Can I pour you a glass? Would you like some? Oh, if you could, that'd be great. Here. Cheers.
0: Mmm. And to you.
1: I realise that just before eating, I'm slightly nervous. It's as though I don't believe I'm going to be fed... And I get some sort of anxiety, whether it's left behind from boarding school and the meagre rations or not, I don't know. But as soon as I've got my food, I just feel, oh, I sort of really relax.
0: I am exactly the same, which is odd given what I do for a living. I, I, In some ways, think I'm temperamentally unsuited to being a restaurant critic because I constantly fear I'm going to be forgotten by waiters and not brought my food which is not a great state of mind for someone who does it professionally but somehow I've managed to carry on doing that for 21 years. So you headed down south what were you looking for? What was the, the and, I, and we should put this in, in in context this would have been the early 70s. I was born in
1: 1957. So maybe the mid 70s. I was looking for the world I was looking to meet people. I worked as a secretary, but I was absolutely hopeless because I'm dyslexic. And it was before spell check, you know, it's like manual typewriters. And then I became a uh, sort of, I was collecting small claims through the county court. But what you had to do was trace debtors. And we used these people called inquiry agents who would go and make inquiries at the last known address to see if they could find where they'd gone. They were absolutely useless. So after work, I was my own inquiry agent so I set up a, you could call it a private detective agency.
0: <laughs> You've always struck me as someone fascinated by people. I mean, it, it would seem a sort of prerequisite for what you do now, or what, how you're known. Um, did the idea of that, investigating people's lives, trying to track them down, did that excite you or was that merely a means to an end, a job? I,
1: I just thought of it as a job. I do things like... Uh, go to Joe's last known address and go, is Joe in? Oh, he's living with his mum now. Oh, of course. Can you remind me of her address? Then I'd go and find Joe and I'd say, Joe, Joe, the high purchase agreement for the fridge freezer. It's a bit of a bummer. But my ex-wife has got it. And you signed the papers. It's just not fair, is it? (laughs) And I said, but you need to clear this if you ever want to get credit again. You know, what can you afford to pay? And you go, I could manage two pounds a week. And I said, look, shall we set it up as a pound a week? Then at least you know you can do that. In two years' time, it'd be all over. And he'd be so grateful because it would have been worrying him. I just realised that being nice to people was a better way of getting somewhere. Most people are nice. Of course there would be the odd scoundrel you know, there's nothing much I could do about them. <laughs> Maybe it was then that I started reading psychology uh, and becoming interested in that
0: path. What's striking about that is that was obviously pre-psychotherapy uh, training, uh, which led to, you know, the most recent book on yeah. uh, for parents and, uh, you know, raising children. But it actually sounds like the same empathetic skills were already in play, which was not go in and challenge them with verbal violence and, uh, you know, accusation, but instead saying, what can we do about this together?
1: Well, it'd be very difficult to threaten them with uh, verbal violence. I was only 20.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Are you sure? I mean, I can imagine you being pretty good at that. I'm a coward. I hate confrontation. I hate conflict. Um, whenever I read about you, it, it it seems to be the case that your life, your modern life began when you went to that creative writing course and met some bloke from Essex in a red leather leather jacket over in the corner. Well, is that a, is that reasonable or is that? No, it is quite myth reasonable. Building.
1: Um, I met him the first term I went to art school, so I was beginning to meet. People ah,
0: okay.
1: who um, were of a similar mindset and I I got on with. And so it, the timing was perfect to meet Grayson then. I was already married, you know, little things like that. But my husband of that time was not going to be the well, baby father.
0: I knew that. Can we, can we just step back a second? Well, I do a lot of research. And I've not once before noted the fact that there was another chap before Grayson. I mean, I would assume there were others, but I didn't know you were actually married. Yeah. How long for? About seven years. That's not insignificant, is it? No. Nice (laughs) chap. But not the one? No, not the one.
1: I think we marry aspects of our parents, and I think he might have been the sort of... the stiff upper lip aspect of my parents, whereas Grayson was more of the sense of humour and sense of play aspect. So I ditched one for the other.
0: It's quite a psychodrama, isn't it, though? To you, are sitting in a corner, you must be thinking, this marriage isn't working, this isn't going to be it. Oh, but I like the look of him.
1: Hang on no? a sec, we have, we have a problem. Do we? Yeah, the cat is making a noise with the carrier bag. <laughs> Come on.
0: Kevin, stop it.
1: Stop it, Kevin. No.
0: The fact that I know your cat's name is hilarious.
1: Go on, get in. If you want to get in the bag, get in the bag, but stop cracking it.
0: I'm trying to have fun. And <laughs> <laughs> we must take our fun where we may. I
1: didn't actually, when I first went to the creative writing course, um, Grayson wasn't my first choice. There was a rather romantic Irish poet, but he was. Um, No prospects. He was too troubled. Well, Grayson didn't have any prospects. He was working as a tea boy in a hairdresser's, not even a proper hairdresser, whilst getting on with his art that wasn't making him any money. But even then, he had such a brilliant way of looking at the world. Completely unfettered, it seemed, by his culture. Like, I saw the world through my upbringing. You know, I was still half Hyacinth's bucket, whereas he'd never really taken on his working class culture that he came from. So he was making it up as he went along. He had an original way of looking at things and still does. And that's what attracted me to him. And I think what attracted him to me was that I read so much about psychology that I kept analysing things, and he loved that because he didn't know anything about psychology or philosophy then. So we were a good, ma- good mix in that respect.
0: Um, I should state for the record that to get the other side of some of this, obviously, Grayson was a guest, uh, I think, in Series 2 of Out to Lunch. Oh, what did he and... say about me? <laughs> oh, there was, a bit. there was a bit in there. Um... <laughs> oh, what have you just picked up?
1: It's something... It's like caramelised chopped onion or something. I'm just going to say oh, I
0: would imagine it's caramelised onion. Oh, yeah. Um, it's onion jam, I'd say. Hmm, fantastic. Oh, but the, the onion's got a little bit of raw crunch to it. Absolutely superb. I'll pass, I'll pass the word on to the chef. Yeah, um, that's great. How quickly did, uh, you know... Oh, hello, I'm Grayson. I'm a, an artist. I come from Essex. I had a teddy bear called Alan Measles. Oh, and I, I very much like... Cross-dressing. How, where did that <laughs> bit come, out, come into um, the conversation? First date, second date? Fourth? What happened was we, um, in this creative writing course,
1: we had to keep a diary and then read out extracts of our diary. And we both found each other's diaries hilarious. I mean, mine was terrible. I was um, having an affair with this guy called Donald and... Uh, Donald and I had sexual relations and he said to me the second time we made love, he said to me, sorry, it's always quick the first time. (laughs) Which,
0: of course, made for not a great life, but hilarious diary reading. It's a useful point, though, because that does mean that you were somewhat unshackled from your marriage if you were already having an affair with Donald at that point. Yeah.
1: We had what you call an open marriage. (laughs) I mean, there was
0: never
1: never any deceit involved. I'm a a useless liar. Um, And my husband, uh, my Mm. then-husband, had affairs as well. Not that I was that interested in them. We were more like friends, I think, than lovers.
0: So you were going on about Donald um, and his speedy congress.
1: I changed the name of Donald because it didn't seem fair to give his real name. So it's also not
0: a very sexy name, I just want to say that. <laughs> did you choose the sexier name?
1: Donald was the sexier name I chose. <laughs> anyway.
0: <laughs> but the cross-dressing, did that come oh, up in one of his was, diary
1: entries? That was the first, uh, it might have come up in a diary, but it was definitely the first date. He said, do you want to go to a private view or a transvestite club? Obviously a transvestite club.
0: He's described that night in the in the in the other podcast. I just like to Oh move, really you know, move people up. And how you both didn't recognize each other because well, I'm you... going
1: to a transvestite club. I'm going to make a bit of an effort. So I probably looked like RuPaul. I had ostrich feathers, high heels, corset, long blonde wig. And I thought, why has he asked me to pick him up? Because you know, the the club's really near my house, so I have to drive all the way out to Leytonstone, then back here again, because I was in this house then. So anyway, I didn't think about it, and I went to pick him up. This is the first time I've been to the house, and I knocked on the door, and this sort of middle-aged-looking woman answered. And I said, is Grayson in? And at the same time thinking, why is he living with his mother? (sighs) And then his, his voice, I reckon, straight away, who wants her? Like, who wants her? It was a bit more Essex then. Then I realised it was him and he realised it was me.
0: It was uh, quite fun not recognising each other. Getting into this, there's, you know, in, in the modern age, there is a, a response to Grayson um, and his cross-dressing as, hurrah, he's a very comfortable transvestite um, and, and putting on the frocks and all of that. But again, referring to the other one, we talked about this. Obviously it's a sexual compulsion and that there's also an element of the enjoyment of being looked at and perhaps shame and enjoying shame and embarrassment and all that stuff. Did you get into any of that? Did any of that strike you? Did you find it sexy? Oh, you know me. I like a little bit of analysis. Did you find it sexy?
1: I always like a man in makeup. I do like that because they're improved by it. I like the makeup, but I hate false boobs. Hate them. And you might notice he's dropped those.
0: I have noticed. Yeah. I have noticed. Well, in that period in the 70s, there was quite a lot of that going on. Mark Bolan.
1: Oh, he dressed up nicely, didn't he? Yes, maybe yeah, he that's why I had a thing for it. Because, you know, David Bowie, Mark Bolan, they were all putting on the slap. And I was quite attracted to androgyny in, in general. Still am. I'm not that keen on muscle men. I'm going to move on to the next
0: course. Yes, sorry, I had already done that. I think you should. So you've got a beef wellington, oh, and it should come with dauphinoise and green beans.
1: Oh, it's amazing. So I'm going to get my, my warmed plate here. The, You're very classy at this. The wait has come and cleared away the first course, which is jolly good. And now I'm going to open my beef wellington. That
0: is... Sizeable. Do you have a sharp knife in which to cut into it?
1: I've just got an ordinary knife. I didn't know what you're going to throw at me. I might go and get a steak okay. knife.
0: I think that might be a good Back point. in a min. So where did the already pre-existing interest in the workings of people's minds move to, be, to a therapeutic point where... You thought, this is something I want to be more serious about.
1: I noticed, I went to art school and I noticed a lot of my work was informed by psychology. And when I got together with Grayson, I found it quite hard to be an artist because he was an artist in a very different way of mine. I just needed a different role. And I'd been resisting the call to psychology for a long time. I just gave into it. And it felt like coming home, really. I mean, I love doing art, and I make art as a hobby and in my
0: spare time, but... And you're part of the Channel 4. Uh, I
1: am. I'm in Grayson's Art, art Club, and people are very Grayson's surprised that I am an artist and I can make
0: art, but yes, I can. But I do- But you like that surprise, don't you? You like oh, that I mean, yes, surprise. Yes, I
1: it. I've never been able to take it seriously enough to make it a living, but I, th- I think I could now... But I couldn't then, somehow. I do think art is a value and, 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 and could be something you could do justifiably to make a living. But at the time I was at art school, I couldn't quite square it with myself either. So I, I was an artist for a couple of years. I had one collector that bought everything I made. That's nice. Well, it was nice. Until I found out he used to give my pieces away to people who bought bigger pieces from him as a sort of free gift. And I thought, right, I'm not selling him anything else. I'm training as a psychotherapist. So that's what I did.
0: One of the um, the key parts of training as a psychotherapist is you have to go through therapy yourself, don't you? Don't you just? Yeah. What do you learn? What you, Did you discover anything that you didn't realise oh, about everything.
1: yourself? I was at an establishment that it's now uh, not operating anymore. They said I had to have, I don't know how many thousands of hours of therapy it was with the same therapist. And I realized uh, after about a year with this therapist that he was terrible. He was a really bad therapist and yet I was stuck with him for another three years. Otherwise I'd have to start again with someone else which is what I should have done. So I learned how not to be a therapist with him
0: that could be helpful in itself can't uh,
1: it yeah and once i qualified i then did a a, a jungian analysis that was my real proper therapy i realised that my first therapist had been competing with me oh i didn't sort of get that until i had a therapist that didn't do that i thought oh this is a bit different <laughs>
0: <laughs> did you discover that there were things of about yourself that really needed to be sorted, or did you discover that underlying it all, you were on a you know on a spectrum, a pretty together human being?
1: I mean, I don't think it's that necessary to be together. I think sanity might be being able to fall apart and be okay with that, and not know and and be unsure, um, and be vulnerable and be strong in in your vulnerability. So. Um, I mean, one of the things I learned in my analysis was that being dyslexic, I'd always had this unspoken belief that I believed myself to be um, thick. Ah. And I wept and wept and wept on that couch while this was unraveled. It was like, it had gone in so deep. And then when, it, when he was digging it out with the pitchfork, um, it was it was like a painful operation. It was it was so hurtful and so painful. Um, that was the work. I think that was a lot of the work. The
0: the, the question I always want to ask therapists is: To what degree do you sit in that chair, helping your 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 clients along, and just find yourself fascinated by what's going on in their lives? Or is it quite dull?
1: I don't see it like that. I'm never bored, but nor am I ever fascinated. What I'm doing when someone's talking to me is looking for their process, which means I'm looking for their regular patterns for dealing with certain situations and their regular way of responding, of reacting. And that I call process. So although there might be a story going on and I like to listen to the story and I get swept up with the story, I'm looking for the bones underneath the story. And then I want to make them aware of those bones that they hang their stories on. And so that is quite hard work. So while I'm doing that, I haven't really got... Anything left over to be fascinated or bored or anything. I wouldn't say I was never judgmental because I'm a human being and I do have judgment, but I'd like to think that I can suspend that. So that's why I'm not fascinated. I mean, sometimes I'm bloody horrified, you know, by the trauma someone's been through. I've never been fascinated, but I've never been bored. Because exactly. because if you're bored, what's <laughs> yeah. going on is very, very interesting. If you're bored, yeah. what this means is that what needs to be talked about isn't being talked about. It means they're sitting on the real story and giving you what you want to hear. Or they're giving you a version of themselves they want you to believe. That's when you get bored. It's because they're not in the meat of it.
0: Uh, well, you see, this is interesting because I was going to respond to you that as an interviewer, as a journalist, because that's also as a reporter, yeah. I've constantly been fascinated, uh, but also regularly I have been bored in an interview. And I, when I've been bored, it's because I'm not getting the fucking story. No, they're, um, they're telling you what, uh, what they want you to hear. They're not telling you the truth. So you come to prominence through a number of books. You have couch fiction, your graphic novel about a therapist and a relationship with a, uh, a client. Um, How to Stay Sane, and the most recent one, which is a huge bestseller in a way that makes me... Uh, huge you know,
1: there. I'm number two on the Sunday Times bestseller list again this
0: week. Still? Uh, no, uh, not, I haven't been
1: there all this time. I've just come back again for a bit. Oh, I think it's lockdown.
0: Uh, uh, the book you wish your parents had read and your children would be glad that you did. You've been an agony aunt. Um, I, I love being an had... agony
1: aunt, and that's when we first met, because I interviewed you about your mum, who's
0: also was also an agony aunt. I grew up with someone like that. As her son, I could give you chapter and verse on her many flaws as a human being. I loved her to pieces and I was very proud of her. Um, But I was also aware, in some some way, I won't won't share here, but uh, in ways that would surprise people um, of her own particular flaws. And you're human, you're a person, Mm -hmm. you're not a... You're you're not an uh, archetype. You're not actually Tiresias being able to see into the future. You're you're not the great sage of uh, King's Cross. Thanks for bringing that home, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Well, but I I do want... You're a human being. Does Philippa Perry ever suffer from imposter syndrome? Oh! Thinking, while I'm handing out this advice, I am not necessarily the paragon.
1: All the time. Sometimes I just want a break from work so I can give my imposter syndrome voice and the battle I have with it a break. Um, it's such hard work. Um, yeah, I do get imposter syndrome a lot. Um, also, I, when you take your car to be mended, you do that because you're not a mechanic. And, and you want some expert to look at how your car works. And I'm full of awe for my car mechanic that he managed to get that Lexus going every time it packs up on me. Um, I'm just a car mechanic. I've been trained in one area. And uh, I'm I'm no sage, really. I've just got an area of training and... I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I have some practice in an area. And also, I've almost like got a sub-personality that's Miss, Mrs Psychotherapy Pants. Um, I've been told by my husband and friends that she comes out in great force with all guns blazing on a Sunday morning at breakfast. Oh. So if you stay the weekend with us, do you remember in those good old days when we used to have house guests? I do. Saturday night, all very, very jolly. Sunday morning, maybe it's a little bit of a hangover on my part. I don't know. But apparently I'm very sharp on Sunday mornings and it's like, oh, it's Phil's Sunday morning. You know, like, I don't know, some gun going off. So I have this sort of sage. It's quite good, but she's sort of separate in a way from uh, the person that burns the cakes or lets the bread overprove or... um, forgets to reply to an email, you know, and has failings or upsets someone without meaning to.
0: All of that stuff still happens, do you? Yes,
1: all of that stuff still happens. I actually sent off a drunk email last night that I regretted. Did you? I did. I'd agreed to do uh, a lecture for charity. I thought that was just very generous of me. And I got a long list of do's and don'ts from this charity, oh, one okay. of which was, make sure you have soft light uh, on your Zoom thing and be extra careful about your Zoom background. I just thought, uh, no. <laughs> but I wrote such a rude email to my publicist. Luckily, not to the charity, but... I used every word that you shouldn't
0: use. Uh, Did you send a second one this morning when you got? Yes, of course. Which which you were being nagged at by the one over. It's not
1: you. It's not him. It's me. I sent. Yeah. (laughs) And I still don't (laughs) want to do this. I'm. I'm backing out. out. Soft light. Make sure you have soft light on your face. Soft light.
0: One of the results of your work is that you are now. Famous. Has it changed the dynamic in the household? Has it improved it that you're now both in your own fields exceedingly successful?
1: I think your professional life is so, like, so very separate from the two people sitting on the sofa having a laugh over Gogglebox or Shit's Creek or whatever it is we're watching at the moment. It's so very separate from that. It's so distanced from that that I don't think it makes much difference. But I will say this. Yes. When Grayson won the Turner Prize, it's not that he changed or I changed, but other people's attitudes to us as a couple changed. And we used to go into a private view or something and both have to make the same amount of effort to have decent conversations. After he became famous and I didn't, everybody would come up to him and start a conversation about something they know about him. And he'd have a very easy time. And he'd, he'd come away from a party and go, oh, that was lovely, wasn't it? And I go, no, it was bloody hard work, actually. <laughs> or I can remember being at a private view at the Tate and I saw an old friend from art school there and they came up to me and I was all pleased to see them. they go, oh, I'm glad you're here because I've always wanted to meet your husband. And I said, I'm fine, how are you? You know, I was so angry. So just in that moment, and there was a few incidents like that where I felt like where we had been equal before, now he's famous. I'm being treated by the outside world as, as less than I used to be in, in comparison. In other words, I had a narcissistic injury.
0: Ah, okay.
1: And I think this is what spurred me on to write my first graphic novel my first book because I thought well he's an artist so everything he does he does for show I'm a psychotherapist everything I do is in private so I thought I'll do a graphic novel about my work to show what I do and then I can show off as well but in order to make the graphic novel any good I had to be really honest And then when I'm really honest, I had to face up to my mistakes and my failings and my weaknesses as a therapist. So in my graphic novel, Couch Fiction, you've got an imperfect therapist, which was quite painful to write. I mean, it was great because that book was quite successful. It was a sort of calling card for everything that happened to me since. And I felt like once I got that in public, the narcissistic injury didn't hurt so much. But it was definitely there. I got something I call plus one syndrome. When you'll be, you know, we go to a a late night at the Tate or something just to look at the art. And then an evening standard journalist would come rushing over and push me to one side to get to Grayson. And I don't know, in all honesty, whether I would have written a book if I hadn't had that. And then I wrote How to Say Stain. And then they were begging me to write something
0: else. And so I got the job of writing the book you wish your parents had read. A professional question. Uh, We're talking in lockdown three. I have to ask, how damaging do you think the situation we've been through has been for the nation's mental health?
1: I think the bummer is, is that people need people. And we're pack animals and we've got a sort of mind body split. So I know cognitively, I know if I reason about it, why my daughter isn't coming into the house, why she sort of stays on the pavement, goes, hi, mum. And we have a two metre conversation on the doorstep while she drops off my groceries. I know why she's not coming in but I cannot get the message through to my body. So when I shut the door, I have a feeling of being rejected. Because, Seriously? She, because she hasn't come in. But there's another part of me that doesn't get it. We, as a power couple, get invited to a lot of parties, <laughs> right? And mm-hmm. I love parties. I love meeting people. I love getting a bit tipsy and saying what I shouldn't. I love it all. Our mantelpiece, is bare, not a stiffy on the chimney piece at all. And a part of me thinks, have we done something wrong? Are we outcasts? And then I remember, it. no, nobody's going to any parties at the moment. Uh, and also I used to, in better days, do choir practice once a week. I used to sing with some other people. And just, I just miss being with people and breathing with people. And I think it did me good to do that, to be part of a group, singing or chatting, whatever you're doing. I think it's, it's necessary for good mental health, whether it's a family group or a choir or whatever it is. We will find out what happens. I expect we're more resilient than we think. Let's hope it's temporary and not forever.
0: One of the curious things I found about doing these episodes of the podcast via video link and takeaway is that maybe this isn't your experience today that actually it does feel like having lunch together Uh,
1: it does now we've been talking for half an hour or so because i've got used to it you know but at the beginning i kind of go i'm not getting a sense of you I'd probably get a sense of you quicker if we were meeting face-to-face. Also, we'd have the ambience, we'd have the clinking glasses of the next-door table, we'd people watch, it'd be a laugh. I just want to show you something.
0: Oh, yeah, OK, okay. so the, the, the picked... laptop is being picked up?
1: Yeah, being picked up, and this is the bag the food came in, and look... And
0: there was a cat asleep in the bag. There's a
1: cat asleep <laughs> in the bag. That is the lovely Kevin making the most of your hospitality, uh, as indeed I have. Thank you very much indeed. I've really enjoyed it and I've had such a great meal. Thanks.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Philippa was absolutely brilliant. I love her hankering for a proper party. You and me both, Philippa, you and me both. Uh, We ate extremely well, thanks to the wonderful people at 45 German Street. Philippa had chicken liver parfait in Beef Wellington, and I had mackerel tacos and pork belly. Oh, what a life we do lead. And if you wanna hear more of this, please do support us by sharing this episode with everyone you know and subscribe so you get the next one landing direct into your inbox. And rate, comment, give us five stars if you can. It wouldn't hurt, would it? lunch is there something else and jay rayner production the music was written arranged and performed by me jay rayner and robert rickenberg the recording engineer was gulliver tickle and the mix engineer was josh gibbs jemima rathbone was assistant producer the producer is selena ream the executive producer is darby doris additional production is from steve ackerman next time it's line of duty and bodyguard screenwriter jed mercurio so joe i can exclusively reveal (laughs) that there are no plans for me to answer that question Uh. (laughs) Gently curious. That is not fair.